let me uh, welcome you. Uh, my name is Hal McCulloch, and I'm Assistant Dean of the College. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome the class of 2002 to Princeton University as you begin your own intellectual odyssey over the next four years, and to this Fresh Freshman Assembly given in your honor. Each year, we invite a senior member of the Princeton faculty to address the entering class at this assembly on a topic of his or her choosing, which serves to provoke interest and stimulate discussion, to kindle the imagination and excite the intellect, and to connect life in the academy to issues of ethical, historical, and sometimes scientific significance within the world around us. This year, I am privileged to introduce our speaker, Froma I. Zeitlin, Ewing Professor of Greek Language and Literature, Professor of Classics and Comparative Literature, and Director of the Program in Jewish Studies. Let me provide a few highlights of Professor Zeitlin's, Zeitlin's distinguished career as a scholar and a teacher. A Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Radcliffe College at Harvard, she went on to earn her PhD in classics at Columbia University. After serving on the faculty of Rutgers University, she joined the Princeton faculty in 1976. She has held a number of prestigious external fellowships, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship. She's an honorary fellow at Newnham College, Cambridge University, as well as a member of the high table at King's College. In 1995-96, Professor Zeitlin was the Sather Professor at the University of California at Berkeley, a professorship that is marked by one of the most acclaimed series of lectures in the field of classics. In 1996-97, she has, uh, in 1996-97, excuse me, she was a fellow at the Humanities Institute of the University of Michigan. At Princeton, she has served on numerous boards and committees, and in 1995, she received the Berman Award for Outstanding Service in the Humanities. Professor Zeitlin is the author of five books, including most recently, Playing the Other, Gender and Society in Classical Greek Literature, as well as numerous articles. It was her pioneering work 15 or 20 years ago on the Greek tragedian Aeschylus that first drew my attention to her keen intellect and her close textual readings. As I mentioned, Professor Zeitlin also serves as director of the program in Jewish studies. And her course, Texts and Images of the Holocaust, is always well subscribed by Princeton students who praise her for her sensitivity and her passion in treating this difficult subject. This evening, Professor Zeitlin will be speaking on this topic in her address, Remembering the Holocaust, Perspectives at the Millennium. I'm sorry I'm not going to be able to amuse you much uh, this evening. Uh, the choice of topic, I should say, came from Dean McCullough, who felt that this would be uh, provocative. Uh, and I've, since my lecture, I'm afraid, might be a little too long, I've taken out the page that explains how I fit the different parts of my life together. If there's time later, we can bring that up. 
When I was given the honor by the college to present the freshman assembly this year, it was explained to me that the idea behind this event was meant to, quote, establish an intellectual tone for the activities of Orientation Week and amidst the formal procedures and social razzmatazz, quote, to raise the expectations of freshmen for the exciting academic opportunities that lie ahead of you. Those opportunities, which we professors like to think, is mainly for education. The opening of new horizons, the challenges to mind and spirit, and the pleasures, and yes, I have to tell you, the not infrequent growing pains of learning. It should be a serious topic, I was told. And you can see by the title of this talk, Remembering the Holocaust, Perspectives at the Millennium, that I took the idea of serious very seriously. One could hardly choose a more daunting subject. In fact, one, one of greater challenge than to consider the Holocaust, the memory it has left behind, and its impact upon us, upon you, as we approach the millennium. And yet, for me, there is an even more appropriate reason for discussing this topic with you this evening, since my first efforts at teaching a course on the Holocaust was, in fact, in the frame of a freshman seminar about 12 years ago. I now teach such a course regularly for humanistic studies and comparative literature, a course that has proven to be among the most rewarding in all of my experiences at Princeton, and I'm just about to teach it once again. And so maybe tonight I'm here to pay a debt to you freshmen for having given me the opportunity to venture into new territory, to experiment with methods and materials that lie outside my own particular specialty. Now these days, more than 50 years after the end of the Second World War, in 1945, and I calculated that it was 65 years since Hitler came to power in 1933 and promulgated the first anti-Jewish legislation, among other things, that somehow the Holocaust seems to be more with us than ever in scholarly circles as well as in the public eye. Remarkably, the dissemination of knowledge through the media of popular culture have attained unexpected success. For example, the United States Holocaust Museum and Memorial in Washington, D.C. on Constitution Mall has been oversubscribed by hordes of visitors ever since it opened a few years ago. I thought I'd mention Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, which brought a harrowing vision of terror and atrocity to movie screens and reached an enormous audience worldwide. Spielberg not only educated audiences with a new awareness of the scope and effects of persecution, but he startled them as well by focusing on an enigmatic figure, a mixture of contradictions between a high-living con man and an eventual rescuer of his some 1,100 slave laborers. Yet Spielberg's work also had the effect of raising the difficult question of the limits of representation in an aim to recreate to simulate events, events even for those who experience them, surpass the imagination, and this is a point to which I'll return. Historians still continue their debates about origins, causes, and consequences, 
Goaded further in their inquiries by the sensational best-selling work of Daniel Goldhagen's Hitler's Willing Executioners, both here and abroad, which <coughs> proposes a very simplistic theory of what he called an eliminationist anti-Semitism that he claimed totally pervaded ordinary German consciousness. A theory, I should say, interestingly enough, won him an enormous following among young Germans and made him actually a media star and earned him to the astonishment of many the German Peace Prize, or the Democratic Prize. During this past week alone, I noted there was at least one article in the New York Times every single day pertaining to some aspect of the Holocaust. Publication of a few missing pages from Anne Frank's diary, a work I presume needs no further application, right? Most people know that, given its virtual cult status. New developments in the museum world concerning art looted from the victims that somehow made its way into permanent collections, private and public, with little regard, and not a little chicanery, but little regard for the rights of their true owners. And another piece concerning the Swiss banks, yes, again, the Swiss banks, who reluctantly have had to face up to their own complicity in the matter of Nazi gold and their own venality in refusing, until they could refuse no longer, uh, so many years later, to make restitution for assets they were holding in accounts of those who had perished. And finally, I noted there's Volkswagen's fairly minimal acknowledgement of its responsibility in its use and abuse of slave labor during the war by they've just established a small fund for few survivors yet alive. But the other mega German companies, as I've, I've I noted in today's paper, will probably have to follow. So this is the time, it seems, for an accounting of sorts so many years later, with the only real solace being some notion of justice, however belated, some measure of dignity restored even posthumously to the degradation of those annihilated, including and especially on the part of those who were not perpetrators, but as we know now, who profited during and afterward from human misery and weakness. These financial accounts will eventually be closed, but this dire chapter in history is not. The moral and intellectual status, statute of, of limitations has not run out. Despite the fact that no other event, or maybe cluster of events, has been so thoroughly documented and studied, but by no means exhausted from that archival side, the fact that so many memorials and museums are constructed or planned and themselves are often subject to controversy. And when so many commemorations, so many testimonies, both oral and written, continue to appear now at the last hour to bear witness to the crimes that were meant to leave no witness, no memory, no trace. A, a historical situation which in its scope, as well as in its details, seems to have constituted another reality, one that still arouses a similar reaction of incredulity on the part of those like you who may encounter it for the first time. Well then, what is the urgency that demands rehearsal, remembrance, and repetition of the telling, that demands continuing investigation from historians, continuing work by intellectuals, philosophers, psychologists, and yes, artists, poets, and writers for an event which is on the verge of passing into history, which is more than half a century old. How does it differ from other traumatic phenomena so that it has indelibly marked our consciousness 
and has itself become the word and the idea, the archetype by which other events are measured and to which they are compared. The mere mention of the name and a host of images rise before our eyes, colors of stark black and red, barbed wire, guard posts, and the human body made grotesque, deformed, and degraded, hollow-eyed skeletons tottering on feeble sticks of legs. These are codes, instant signs of that event or series of events, which not without contestation is most often named the Holocaust, as I have done here. Sometimes it's called Shoah, which in Hebrew means annihilation. The French are pretty straightforward. They say l'extermination, the extermination. And in German, we have, of course, that euphemism that was used at the time, entlösung, the entlösung, or the final solution, a phrase therefore banned from normal, ordinary use. And the event is condensed symbolically still further in the minds of many in the single name of a single place, a little town in Poland, with given its German name called Auschwitz that Enes Mundi, as the Germans themselves often refer to it, where several million met death, some through the brutality of camp life, but the majority through gas chambers and crematoria. In the six, space of six months, let me just quickly say, when Germany was already losing the war, but from May to October 1944, 450,000 Hungarian Jews, the Jews in the last remaining intact community in Europe, were deported. Well, whether one calls Auschwitz another planet, another kingdom, another universe, all those who experienced of it speak of a world that was not of this world, where all was inverted, where day turned into an endless night, fantasy turned into reality, and none of the standards, beliefs, or values one had taken for granted had any validity. Here is kein warum. Here there is no why. A guard replies to a prisoner, disoriented, still in shock, his first induction into a world that operates by wholly other rules, or rather, one where a logic of absurdity reigns, senseless, arbitrary, violent, and cruel, adding up to a deadly system in which only one outcome is logically to be expected up the chimney. You expected the worst, said one survivor. You did not expect the unthinkable. So this moment, 50 years or more later, is a critical one. On the one hand, we, you, are living at a very special time when the events of this frightful past are on the point of passing into history because the perpetrators, the victims, and even the bystanders are rapidly dying out. There'll be no more major trials, certainly. As you take your place in the generational sequence of this century, you too are still part of this historical era. And indeed, memory and recollection can still, is still being produced from those few who were really there, those who stood in that place, in that time, and by chance survived when their families, their communities, and indeed European Jewry as a whole, that is Jewry defined according to Nazi legal uh, promulgation, was denied the right to exist. And as I want to, will want to argue this history you need to claim as yours, since you were born afterwards, you're born after the Holocaust, after Auschwitz, you can't imagine a world that was before it any more than you can imagine a world before AIDS. And on this basis alone, I think you need to know more. On the other hand, or perhaps 
as a continuation of my first point, the past seems all too present to us. It is still unmastered, still unresolved. It is still a haunting specter that rises again in the threats of ethnic cleansing such as Bosnia, the rise of neo-Nazi groups and xenophobic racism, which inevitably include denial of the factuality of the event itself. It didn't take place, it didn't happen. And from another point of view, it should be of some concern that the Holocaust may also be subject to abuse. With the historian Omer Bartov, worries may be, quote, a morbid attraction to and fascination with the worst epoch in contemporary history, its perversions, its quality of sheer evil, its unconditional violence, which risks putting us in the situation of voyeurs or worse. Or another danger is the subject to, to subject it to ideological battlegrounds in which rhetoric, hyperbole, and irresponsible demagogy come all too easily to those who would exploit it for political purposes. And to say nothing finally of a dangerous propensity to remember through trivialization or exploitation. As when a couple of years ago, a French avant-garde fashion house presented a full collection with skinny models, their hair cut short, cheeks hollowed out, wearing striped baggy clothes, dubbed the concentration camp look. But let me return to my initial question. Why this attention to the Holocaust? Why has it been called the defining event of its age? I'm giving you different quotes here. The indelible reference point of Western imagination. Why is it said that after Auschwitz, the world was simply not the same as before? because the addition to our vocabulary of the very word Auschwitz means that today we know things that before could not even be imagined as real. Or as another voice says, altered the very landscape of memory. To claim then that it was the most traumatic event of the century, that it put us forever in a state of consciousness I've already designated as post-Holocaust or post-Auschwitz, is not meant, and let me please hasten to add, to mystify the catastrophe by isolating it from all other atrocities per per perpetrated before, after, and now. In our current climate that seems to encourage competition for victimhood, both on the individual and communal or ethnic level, my conviction of the uniqueness and in the implications of that uniqueness of the Holocaust should in no way be taken as undervaluing or disregarding the sufferings, the injustices, the cruelties perpetrated on others. I do not mean either to divorce it from its own historical context, whether remote or proximate, and I certainly don't want to demonize it by attributing it to some crazed aberration by a few perpetrators, notably Hitler and his henchmen. Rather, my intent is to acknowledge or to try its distinctive features and the paradigmatic status it has come to occupy on the world stage and to consider what is at stake for us all in both remembering and forgetting. So I need to make my case and I'm going to do it right now. So let me put out a few points and forgive me for some statistics but I think that those may be useful. First, the planned annihilation of an entire people and civilization marked out for extinction by direct government policy deprived of the right to exist for reasons of birth and only for birth, and in fact by a legislation as to what constitutes that particular person. The Nazis murdered between five and six million Jews during the Holocaust. 
This constituted two-thirds of European Jewry, one-third of the entire Jewish people. But 55 million may have perished in all the theaters during World War II, 20 million Soviets, 50 million Chinese, 5 million Germans. The numbers, as the historian Michael Maris points out, aren't key. It's rather the proportion. One every, of every three civilian deaths in Europe was that of a Jew. Not every victim was a Jew, but every Jew was a victim, potential or actual, to be hunted down, flushed out, and finished off. In this respect, and Michael Maris continues to claim, it differs from the Nazi campaigns against other peoples and groups, gypsies, Jehovah Witnesses, homosexuals, Poles, Ukrainians, and so forth. These assaults were murderous, it's true, but Nazi ideology did not decree their total disappearance. Moreover, unlike other genocidal uh, efforts and elsewhere and uh, even today, this was no tribal war that brings about mass murder. No struggle over claims to territory, no demands for political power. Second, the ideology and practice of mass murder and genocide is linked to the development of science and modern technology, which means we need to think about it as specifically a product of our modern age. The Holocaust was conceived under the aegis of modern science, specifically eugenics, that starting with the euthanasia program on Greek soil, promoted the concept that had been theorized for years of something called life unworthy of life as a way of getting rid of undesirable types and thereby build a superior, a master race. Those first targeted in the late 30s were mental and physical detect, uh, defectives, those with hereditary diseases or other ailments, uh, but the concept extended eventually to all Jews, no matter who, men, women, children, and unborn children, deemed by definition to be placed outside the parameters of humanity. Robert Lifton, in his study of the Nazi doctors, insists on the crucial importance in the final solution of the medicalization of killing. The imagery of killing in the name of healing and the crossing of the boundary between healing and killing. The doctors were always present. Uh, in fact, at selections on the ramps, for example, at Auschwitz, there was present when the gas was being administered and would uh, determine when enough had been used. Uh, doctors were involved from the very beginning. The unifying principle of this biomedical ideology was that of a deadly racial disease, the sickness of the Aryan race. The cure was the killing of all Jews and it was a purification of the body politic of its defilement. The parasites or vermin that infested it, for which the killing gas eventually adopted Zyklon B, meant originally for disinfection, became directly and terrifyingly appropriate, even literal. It's when metaphor becomes real. Age-old prejudice and scapegoating of a long history now had a legitimate and necessary function and had all the authority of science behind it. Three, to carry out this program with sufficient dispatch and the speed at which it took place is astounding. Well, more than a murder, a million were murdered by special killing squads in a few months 
when Germany invaded the Soviet Union in, in June 1941. It is worth recalling, as Christopher Browning observes, that in mid-March 1942, some 75 to 80% of all victims of the Holocaust were still alive, and 20 to 25% had perished. A mere 11 months later, in mid-February 1943, the percentages are exactly reverse. Although gassing, certainly at Auschwitz and elsewhere, went on until, and I could name some of the others, which you probably don't know, there were a number of these killing sites, went on until October 1944, and the killings as such lasted all the way to the day of Germany's surrender in May 1945. To accomplish this goal is quite staggering, and what it meant was the industrialization of killing, the processing efficiently of killing not just the sophisticated instruments of death and the use of poison gas and crematoria, but in that the direct instruments of death themselves were inserted into a matrix that was the culmination of the West's technological developments. Think of the factory and assembly line. Think of transportation, surveillance, record keeping, and efficient bureaucratic procedures that enabled this industrialization of mass death. And that is something new. Industrial of death, of death, industrialization of death on these terms is one aspect. The reduction of human beings to industrial products is the second. The dehumanization of the victims had started long before in disfoliation, forced impoverishment, uh, emigration, senseless violence, starved, starvation, disease, and epidemics induced by lack of hygienic facilities.